Bibles now, if you would please, and let's open them up to Philippians chapter 3. And this evening we're looking once again at the closing verses in this third chapter in which Paul is describing believers as citizens of heaven. Even though we're in the world, we're not of the world. When we trust Christ, our citizenship changes. We're still in our body. We still have to live upon the earth. But at the very moment that we're saved, we become citizens of God's kingdom. Tonight I want to continue the theme uh, I began some time ago, speaking about heaven's colony. Now, I know this seems like the never-ending sermon, because we started way, way back when. I don't know how long ago it was now, and, and I've still got a couple of more parts or, or another part to go on it. When I was first outlining this sermon, what I usually do is, you know, I spend the time studying, and I write down, and I get an idea of the outline that I want to do in my head, and jot that down. And so the, the sermon had four points. And then when I started actually working on the sermon, I discovered that each one of those points could be developed uh, quite extensively. And so the four points ended up being four different sermons on the same subject. So that's why it's taken us so long. But I don't mind doing that because I don't mind thoroughly going through a subject to make sure we understand exactly what the Bible is teaching. So we're looking in Philippians chapter 3. Our text verses are verses 20 and 21. If you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We see the Apostle Paul is writing here in verse number 20, and he says, For our conversation is in heaven. And that word, you remember, means citizenship. Our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you brought uh, these good folks out to hear the message tonight. Pray, Lord, you might bless them. Give us something from your word tonight that will help us in our understanding of what you would want us to do. We thank you so much for... Again, for each one who's here, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The focus of the first two parts of the message as we discussed these was about how that we live on this earth as Christians and how that we maintain ourselves even though we do believe and we do know that we're citizens of another place. We're citizens of heaven. Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount in some ways very closely parallel what we've been speaking about in these verses because that sermon is about kingdom citizens, about kingdom living, the characteristics that Christians need to have in this life. So the Bible's telling us here and in other places, like the Sermon on the Mount, how that we can live as Christians in a world that's hostile to Christianity and really just about to everything that we stand for and that we believe. So we began discussing in the first part of the message the responsibility of a Christian to human government. We can't ignore the laws of our government. Even though we have changed our citizenship by believing in Christ, yet we have to understand that human government has been ordained by God. The government is a product of God's law. And so whenever we obey human government, the laws of our own country, we are at the same time obeying God's law. So that means that a Christian should always obey the laws of the country cheerfully because when he does that, he glorifies God. Now, even though we may disagree with our government and 
there are things that we don't like about it sometimes, laws that are passed that we can't agree with. Yet the Bible teaches us that we are not to unduly cause any kind of strife or division in the government or among the people that we live. Now, whenever man's laws do not come in conflict with God's laws, then we have an obligation to respect and to obey those laws. The Bible also teaches that we are to pray for our leaders. We are to respect their authority. And again, we may not like our leaders, and the president may not be of your particular political party, but we have an obligation under the headship of Christ and under the leadership of God that we obey those who have that rule over us, even though sometimes we don't like their policies. And the reason that we do that is because the chief concern that we have is not really what man is doing in the world. We don't really need to worry about what man is doing in the world. We always ought to concentrate on what God is doing in the world. Now, if politics is something that rules your life, and that's what you sit around and you worry about all the time, what's going to happen here, what's going to happen here, what's the president going to do, what's Congress going to do, if that's the thing that occupies your thinking all the time so that you're worried about, you're simply focusing on the wrong things. We are citizens of another country, and so what we focus on and think about is what God is doing, not what man does. So I kind of look at it this way, is why should we worry when we are actually living under a perfect government, and that's the government of God himself, the king of all kings. Now that thought's led led us into the uh, second part of the message, which is the realm of Christ's kingdom. This is a spiritual realm that we're talking about. Now, one day, it will coincide with the physical realm, and that's when Jesus comes and he sets up an everlasting kingdom of righteousness. Then the spiritual becomes the physical right here on this earth. But we're right now living in a spiritual kingdom, and because we do, we live under a different king. We have a different authority that's over us, and it's not the world's authority. And there, of course, I'm speaking spiritually because before we were saved, before we came to know Christ as Savior, we were in the devil's kingdom. We followed him, as the Scripture says, we're of our father, the devil, when we don't know Christ as the Savior. And so when Christ came, he liberated us from this kingdom of darkness and he translated us into the kingdom of light. And so now we have a new king over us, that's Jesus, and we're subject to a whole new set of laws. Now, that doesn't mean that we abandon All of the laws, as I've said before, of the human government, we have to obey those. But we approach those laws now with a totally different kind of viewpoint, a a different kind of fervor. Because what we really want to do is to be people that are more acutely aware of the laws under which we live. So we don't try to skirt the law. What we're trying to do is to present a good example before others. We don't want any hint of impropriety in our lives. We want to be above reproach. We want to be the kind of people that can be depended upon, people who are honest. And as Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And you can't be salt and you can't be light if you live like them, do like them, act like them. You have to have a different approach to not only the government, but just every person in general that you come in contact with. Now, what we are here to do, and what God has left us in this world to do, is to make a difference in people's lives. We're to be an influence on people. And as we discussed in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what salt is all about. That's what light is all about, the kind of influence that we have on other people. So the first two parts of the message really had to deal more with the attitude towards the world that we live in. We're heaven's colony in a hostile environment, 
And we're to take that willingly. And the reason that we do is because we have a better hope. We have something that we look forward to. Now, that's where I want to shift the focus of the message in the next two parts to talk about what we look forward to. Now, Paul says here, for our conversation is in heaven. And that statement, that's what I've been expounding for the previous two sermons. But now we're going to move on to the rest of Paul's statements. This is the hope for the citizens of heaven. He says, from whence also we look for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what that means to us is that Paul believed in a risen Savior. Christ was crucified. He went into the tomb. He stayed there for three days, and he came out of the tomb. He arose from the dead. And his resurrection is the reason why that we can look for him. That's because he's alive. And friend, you have to understand that the resurrection undergirds everything that we are in our faith. We can never stop emphasizing the resurrection of Christ because when we do, our faith is void. The Scripture says that that our faith is defunct. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, without the resurrection of Christ, he says you are still in your sins. So I want to look at that. I want to look at the next statement of Paul where he speaks of, number three, the resurrection of Christ. He says, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby is even able to subdue all things to himself. Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Jesus arose from the dead in a glorious, a glorified body. How important is that? How important is it for us to believe that Jesus bodily arose from the dead? R.A. Torrey, who was a great preacher in the early part of the 20th century, said that the resurrection of Christ is the Gibraltar of Christian evidences, the Waterloo of infidelity. That means is that the resurrection of Christ is the rock on which we stand and it's also the crushing blow of defeat to all of God's enemies. If Christ did in fact arise from the dead, then all of the claims that Christ made are true. All scripture that is written that he gave is God's scripture. All promises that are based upon it must happen. And so the resurrection is intricately important to our faith. Now, I want to take a few minutes tonight to to talk to you about the resurrection and the importance of it. Now, this is what Paul preached, and he gave the Philippians hope when they were facing a very difficult life, difficult task of, of living in a world that was hostile to them. He came back to them, and he told them, here is what's going to give you hope. It's because Christ is alive, and if Christ is alive, you are also going to live. That song that we sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. If you can think about the resurrection and that doesn't stir you up, if it doesn't help you in your life and living as a citizen of, ki- of the kingdom in this wicked world, then I, I just, there's just no way to help you. If, if you don't have hope in that resurrection, then you have no hope for your salvation. Now, I have, of course, preached on the resurrection many times. Uh, if, if the resurrection is so integral to our faith, you can well imagine that I've preached on it a lot of times, and you've heard the story over and over again. But this is something that never grows old. Whenever Paul 
had to speak with discouraged Christians, this is actually where he'd always go. I mean, he talks about this over and over again throughout his writings. He brings discouraged people right back to the resurrection of Christ, and he says, here is your hope. Let me read to you just a few statements that Paul made in different parts of the Word of God about the resurrection. In Romans 8, verses 10 and 11, he said, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14, he says, And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. In 2 Corinthians 4, 14, he said, Knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. In this same chapter that we're reading tonight, Philippians chapter 3, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. In 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, those are just a few of the many, many times that Paul speaks of the resurrection. He introduces that theme into his teachings to lift up discouraged Christians. In fact, the resurrection is so essential that it undergirds everything that Paul taught. Now, here in our text verses, the conclusion of working for Christ, enduring the shame, pressing on in the midst of our pain and suffering, all of that is because Christ arose. He's a living Savior. And if he's not, then you might as well close your Bible right now and head out to the parking lot because what I have to say next is not going to benefit you at all. He is a risen Savior. So let's take a few minutes to look at four proofs that are declared by the resurrection of Christ. First, the resurrection is proof of Christ's deity. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. Now, Jesus declared that he would die. He said that he would be raised from the dead. He claimed equality with the Father. And that was such a brazen, outstanding statement that there's no way that Jesus could prove that or it could be believed by any other thing than by the miracle of all miracles. Now, we look at Jesus' life and we study what he did in the Gospels and we see that Jesus performed many miracles. Uh, John said that Jesus did so many things that if you were to write down everything that Jesus did, the world couldn't contain the books that should be written. And yet with all the miracles that Jesus did, there was not one miracle that was able to change a person's heart and cause them to believe in him. The miracles were not for that purpose. Now, they may convince us in some ways that Jesus has power, that he could do what he says that he could do. But all the miracles that Jesus did, when it came down to the end of it, the people were just generally rejecting it all. They crucified him, if you remember, after he had performed so many different miracles. 
And so there were lots of people who thought, well, he does those miracles because he's some kind of magician. It's a sleight of hand. It's a trick or whatever it might be. Some of them even said that Jesus performed miracles through the power of the devil. And so they they just looked at it and they dismissed all the many miracles that Jesus did because they thought we can explain them away. And indeed... If Jesus did not fulfill this particular claim that he would arise from the dead, if he did not do what he said, then all of the other miracles that Jesus did could be laid at the feet of the devil. But when Jesus came out of the tomb, he sealed the deal on his deity. It proved that he was equal to the Father because Jesus invoked the name of the Father when he came out of that tomb. Now, there are many people who said that they would come back from the dead. There were many false prophets in the time of Jesus, and some of them claimed that they could come back from the dead. And there are people today that that, uh, claim to be preachers or claim to be this or that, and they say, I'm going to come back from the dead. But nobody's ever done that. Nobody's ever done it but Jesus. In fact, there is no major religion in the world today, none of them who claims that the founder is going to come back from the dead. Uh, Paul said this in writing about his apostleship in Romans chapter 1. He said, Concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? By the resurrection from the dead. And so if you take away the bodily resurrection from Christ then, or uh, of Jesus, then, then he's not God. The Father did not put his stamp of approval upon Jesus' life and his ministry. So the resurrection of Christ is the proof of his deity. Now, secondly, and this is important, very important to all of us, it is proof of our justification. It's proof of our justification. Can we really believe that the death of Christ is the full payment to God for our sins? Now, in that question, you have to ask... uh, The thought here would be, is it possible, is it really possible that we can have a substitute who atones for our sin? And there are many people who argue against that. I mean, here in the Baptist church and what you've heard here, we just take it for granted. Everybody must believe in a substitutionary atonement. But in fact, many of them don't. They deny it. And so you have a lot of people that are forever trying to make themselves right with God because they don't actually believe that Christ could be a substitute for their sins. And then you have some people who say that they believe it and they claim to believe in a substitutionary atonement, but they're actually at odds with it because they don't take it literally. For example, if there's anybody who believes in a hypothetical type of substitution does not really believe that Jesus' death was a satisfaction for sin. See, if you preach that Christ died to redeem all men, and yet there are some men who are not redeemed, then you're not actually preaching a literal substitution. Jesus and the apostles taught that all for whom Christ's sacrifice was made are truly redeemed. And they are infallibly redeemed, because if they aren't, then Christ's resurrection And Christ's death didn't really satisfy God. It has to be something else that satisfies him. There must be something added to it, perhaps. Maybe it's your works. Maybe it's some your faith or or whatever it might be. But whatever it is, Christ's death alone did not sufficiently satisfy God for sin. And so thus you have an atonement that is insufficient unless man has a part. 
But the resurrection of Christ is actually proof that God accepted the death of Christ as the full payment for our sins. Christ's death alone, plus nothing, minus nothing, is the full payment. Now, this is how Paul states it in Romans 4, verse 25. He says, Who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So those for whom Christ died are justified. Listen, he was delivered for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. So that means that the same ones whose offenses put him on the cross are the same ones who are justified. Now, the complete transaction is expressed this way in Romans eight twenty nine and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, there we should see that justification is limited to those who are predestined and called. Now, these are the ones whose offenses cause Christ to be delivered up to the death of the cross. Now, the Scripture says that Christ was raised for their justification. So the proof of the believer's justification is in Christ's resurrection. And so if there are any for whom Christ died that are not justified, then the resurrection is what? It's no proof of justification. There has to be some other proof to look for. So you see how that doctrine all fits together? God has a purpose in putting these things together. Justification in connection with predestination and calling. And so that's why we believe in doctrines like unconditional election and in particular redemption. It's why we believe in the irresistible, infallible calling of the Holy Spirit. It works together because Christ's death is a guarantee of our justification. Now, thirdly... The resurrection of Christ is proof of the believer's life. Now, Paul often talks about the remaining corruption of sin that's left in the body of flesh. When we're saved, God has not seen fit to take the sinful nature away from us. Now, for sure, God has given us a new nature. We're created as a new person in Christ Jesus. But God, again, has not seen fit to take away that old sinful nature. That's going to be here with us as as long as we live in this world. But Paul also tells us that we don't have to live after the dictates of the flesh. In other words, we don't have to live according to that old nature because now we have the capability of living according to the new nature that's created in holiness. Now, a person without Christ doesn't have that new nature, so he's not going to live according to a new nature. But when you get saved, you have that ability, the capability of doing things for God, living for God, and of pleasing God. Now, how do we do that, though? Well, we do it by the power of a living Christ. What do we do when we're hit by sin and when we're surrounded by all of Satan's minions? Well, listen to what Hebrews says. Hebrews 7, 25 says, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now, the argument in uh, Hebrews chapter 7 is that Christ is after the order of an unchangeable priesthood. Now, if you read about this, this is that same passage that tells us about Melchizedek. And what the Bible is teaching here is that there were all 
different kinds of priests. There were many different priests who lived in the Old Testament and died in the Old Testament because every person, every human is subject to death. And so there is no priest that continues forever because he will die. But the writer also says, or or to follow that up, I should say, and there truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But the argument in Hebrews 7 is that Christ is after the order of a different priesthood, that he has the power of an endless life. He died on the cross, but he took that life back. And so Christ has an eternal priesthood. And so he lives to make intercession to God for our sins. And so when we trust Christ, we're delivered from all of our sins that are in the past. We're delivered from sins that we commit right now. And we're delivered from all those sins that we will commit in the future. And the reason that that is possible is because because Christ continues to live. He ever lives to make intercession. And so that tells us that right now, Christ is cleansing us from our sin. We're not condemned by our sin. And it teaches we can have victory over our sin. That is really the foundational premise for the believer's walk. Why does Paul say things like walk worthy in Ephesians chapter 4? How can he say walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing as he does in Colossians chapter 1? And listen to this one. How could he write this? How could he say walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom and glory as he does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2? How does he say that? Well, this is really what it's all about. It's all about kingdom living. It's citizenship in heaven. And we can live according to the holiness and the righteousness of God for this reason, because Christ arose from the dead. He ever lives to make intercession. Now, without the resurrection of Christ, there is no power. There is no possibility. There is no hope for the kingdom of God, because that means that sin remains on us. We have no way to take care of our sins. And so the power of a living Christ takes care of all the sin that we have in our lives now so that we will one day see God. Now, God will never accept sin in his kingdom. And unless Christ ever lives to make intercession for us, then we need not look for heaven. When a liberal says, well, the resurrection, you know, that's a pretty good story, but it really doesn't matter whether Jesus actually came out of the grave or not. Well, when somebody says that, they have buried salvation in the deep blue sea because you can't have it unless Christ did, in fact, arise from the dead. So we have no salvation, we have no justification, we have no citizenship, we have none of it unless Christ lives. Now, fourthly, then, the resurrection is proof of our immortality. Now, this is the meaning of verse number 21. He says, Who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. If Christ came out of the tomb in a glorified body, then we have proof that it is actually possible to have a like glorified body. Now, do you see why Christ's coming in the flesh was so important? There are so many doctrines that are tied to the incarnation of Christ that if you do away with that doctrine, if you do away with the doctrine that Jesus came to this earth in the flesh, then there are just incalculable repercussions to everything that we believe. Now, usually when we talk about the incarnation of Christ, we'll talk about it in relationship to the need that Christ come in the flesh so that he was able to suffer for sin and able to die. He needed a body of flesh to be able to do that. We talk about it in terms that he needed to come into the flesh in order to live a life on this earth, 
live a perfect life so that he could go through every temptation, experience everything that we experience, and so thereby he is able to succor us in in every uh, circumstance and every difficulty that we have because Christ has experienced that. So we talk about it for the purpose of living a perfect life, uh, being able to die. Uh, Jesus had to come in the flesh for those purposes. But didn't Jesus also need it for this? Doesn't he need a body of flesh? Doesn't he need to have a bodily resurrection in order to prove that it is possible that we can have a like bodily resurrection? That's one of the reasons that Jesus was incarnate. One of the reasons why he came to die in the flesh was so that he could arise in the flesh and then he would be able to give us a body that's just like his. Now, the Apostle John was writing on a parallel track when he writes in 1 John 3, verse number 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. In that verse that I read earlier from 2 Timothy, Paul said, But is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, do I need to give you a a definition of the gospel again? You should know it very well. What is the gospel? How that Christ died, how that he was buried, and how that he arose from the dead. And the scripture says that life and immortality come through the gospel. Now, folks, what we're talking about here is not some fanciful, abstract thought. This is not something that somebody just made up, but everything that we're talking about here is based in this cold, hard fact, this reality that the suffering that Jesus suffered on a cruel cross, that he did die, and there was a resurrection from that dark, cold tomb. Christ's resurrection is necessary to ensure the hope of an immortal, sinless body. Now listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, do you see the danger that comes out of groups like the Jehovah Witnesses? They deny the bodily resurrection of Christ, and so, therefore, they deny Christ's deity. They deny our justification by faith alone. They deny the power of the Christian life through Christ's perfect intercession. And they deny also the immortal body of believers. Now what I've given you here tonight is just sort of a a light brush on the subject of the resurrection. You know from listening to our studies in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where a full-blown exposition of the resurrection can take us. It it takes quite a while to examine all the doctrines and everything that goes along with the resurrection of Christ. But here we find that this is the basis for our citizenship in heaven. It's founded in the doctrine of Christ's resurrection. And so here you have the summation in verse 21 
of verse 21. Now, there's more to consider, and we're going to come back next week, and we're going to talk a little bit more about it in the fourth part. But the summation of resurrection doctrine is that simply because Christ lives, we live. And if there is no resurrection, we don't live. That's the basic, what it all comes down to. Because he lives, we live. Now, I want us to take for just, uh, take just a moment to uh, think about other religious movements and philosophies. Let's take Islam, for example. We all know that because of terrorism and things that we've heard, uh, things that have been said about all these terrorists, that a Muslim believes that if he straps a suicide vest to himself and he goes and he blows himself up and murders a bunch of people, that he gets 40 virgins when he gets to heaven. Now, that's a weird belief, isn't it? Because what it really does, it offers a reward for lust. In other words, if, if, if you want to go to heaven, commit more sin. Just be a lustful person, go kill somebody, and that'll help you get into heaven. If that's not the devil's doctrine, I don't know what is. And you wonder how in the world could people be so mixed up and confused about things. But when you think about this, what hope does a Muslim really have? He's got an ayatollah or an imam somewhere who tells him that here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to get those 40 virgins when you get into heaven. Where's his proof? And Where does he know that he's even going to have another life? I mean, how does he know anything about that at all? There is no proof. He's just taking somebody's word. Now, it may be a possibility, and he may entertain the fact that it's a possibility. It evidently does because he carries through with it. But where's the proof? He has no proof. But when we think about what Christ did, and we look at what Scripture says, we have abundant proof for the resurrection of Christ that shows us that our hope is real, that we're not just wistfully thinking about things. We have something concrete to base our faith in. Now, Luke, who was an able historian and recorder, said this in Acts chapter 1, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Now, there is undeniable proof. Now, as people say, well, but that's the Bible. That comes out of the Bible. I mean, so what? It comes out of the Bible. Well, do you know that there's more historical evidence for what's written in the Bible on this ancient, on these ancient things that we read about than for any other single event in all of ancient history? We have over 4,000 manuscripts that have survived that tell us what Jesus came to do. And you know what we don't have? We do not have any credible witnesses who have ever come forward and refuted the resurrection of Jesus Christ.
If you can believe anything about ancient history, you can believe what the Bible says because we have more proof for that than we do anything else that you read about in ancient history. So we've got something to build our faith upon. Now what Paul is doing here then in these last two verses, in just two verses, he's given us the complete foundation of our faith. Right now, we are citizens of heaven. We are a colony of heaven on earth. And our assurance is as simple as this. Because he lives, we live. That's what Paul's trying to get across to us. That's what gives hope to faltering, discouraged Christians. Because he lives, we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we're able to look into your word tonight. We thank you for Jesus Christ and for the undeniable proof that he arose from the grave. Lord, we we would believe that just because you've told it to us. If there was nothing here that said, well, there's proof of this, we would believe it because we trust you, but you wanted us to know so much more because you have all of those witnesses that say they saw you after you died and came out of the tomb. There's no way that anyone can deny this. And here is the real hope that we have for our eternal life. Help us to be thinking about the Lord, to concentrate on that, not to worry about what the world's doing, not to worry about what the government's doing, not worry what will happen to us, because the best is going to happen to believers in Christ, and that is that one day we will see you. Bless in our invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's.